0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut.
1: And I'm Sophia Simonello.
0: And today we have our final rewind, our final anniversary episode for 2022. We're going all the way back to 1962, and we'll be celebrating the 60th anniversary of the epic movie, one of the most epic ever made, Lawrence of Arabia.
1: I am so excited to talk about this movie today, and I also can't believe like when you just said our final rewind, our final anniversary episode of 2022, I was really caught off guard. Yes, I'm familiar <laughs> with the rest of our year and the schedule, but I can't believe we're almost to the end of 2022. Pretty soon, it'll be time for us to say counting down to this year's Oscars.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a fun switch we have. Um, Yeah, only three more episodes for the year. It's kind of nice. You know, we're, we're getting there. A lot of Oscar chat recently and all the critics' prizes coming in, too. So we'll probably update you listeners along the way as some of those big ones come along. But we also do have Golden Globe noms next week to chat about. So all of that is happening. But again, we're in the past today. We're in the desert, this hot, blazing desert, with T.E. Lawrence and Peter O'Toole. You know, this is such a beloved film. It's number seven on AFI's top 100 movies and also third on BFI's 100 best British films. So this is one that is constantly talked about. And there's definitely a lot to get into today.
1: Yeah, I think the reason why this movie was in the news recently was because we got our sight and sound poll results. We have a new update there. And This movie actually fell off of the list. It used to be 81, and it is no longer there, which I think is very sad. But it is one that a lot of directors also love. It did make the director's poll.
0: And I know in the last episode, you said this is one of your favorite Best Picture winners. Is this like top 10, or where does this sit? Ooh. Or just generally?
1: Yeah, generally, it's in the top 10, I think. Okay. Okay. And part of that is because I had the greatest possible first viewing experience you can have for this movie. I saw it in theaters in 70 millimeter for the first time immediately after I got brand new contacts and got an updated prescription. So (laughs) it was just like like everything was brighter (laughs) and beautiful. And just hearing that score and seeing that desert and those camels and that beautiful mirage scene it was just too much and it was a movie that i had never watched growing up or even in high school or into college because i was sort of always waiting for the right time for it to be in theaters to go see it that way for that to be my first experience with it because Mm -hmm. i mean david lean films it's just the way that it goes you have to see them in theaters this was a film too though that i had always had in the back of my mind as one that I thought, oh, you know, it's it's on all these lists. People love it. But is it going to be one that I actually love? Is it just going to be one of these epics that mm-hmm. might make me feel nothing at the end of the day? It might just be this beautiful film that's empty. And in reality, it's so much more than that. It's It's this really deep, vulnerable character study. And it surprises me at every turn. I love it. So... Yeah, I think my perfect viewing experience that really solidified its place in the the top tier of best picture winners for me.
0: Amazing. I mean that really is how you have to see this movie. I can maybe infer what you're saying and it was definitely harder to do it at home on rewatch. I saw this in college on my own. I watched like all of the IMDb top 250.
1: I remember you doing this and you having that spreadsheet. Oh my God. Wow, it's all coming back to me now.
0: So I I definitely watched it then because like we said, it's on every best list. So it's been a while. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely love the character study of it all. It's beautiful. These huge panoramas of the desert and just incredible cinematography. And this epic format, it's almost four hours. So, you mm-hmm. really do feel it in that sense as well. But it really does capture new Hollywood so well from what David Lean is doing and a pretty new Peter O'Toole. It's kind of surprising yeah. that he was years into the business at this point, but still one of his first and definitely biggest films that he did. So, seeing all of these stars interact together with this mainly Arab cast and hearing about this real story, I'm just kind of awful with history.
1: I have a whole history breakdown for you. A little a little primer if you need it.
0: <laughs> Maybe I needed that before my watch. <laughs> but hearing about the Arabs fighting the Turks and what was happening and why the British were involved. Kind of a learning experience, but also kind of a learning curve for me in that sense, too. So... I guess let's talk about the description and what it won at the oscars and then we can get more in depth so lawrence of arabia it's the story of t.e lawrence the english officer who successfully united and led the diverse often wearing arab tribes during world war one in order to fight the turks it's directed by david lean it stars peter o'toole alec guinness anthony quinn jose ferrer and more this one seven of its 10 Oscar nominations. It won for Picture, Director for Lean, Cinematography, Color, Film Editing, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, Sound, and Music, Original Score. Its other nominations were for Actor for O'Toole, Supporting Actor for Sharif, and Adapted Screenplay. So why do you specifically like this movie? Or I guess one, you can talk about your rewatch, and two, maybe what was different From your rewatch that you still really liked?
1: Yeah. So rewatching it at home required much more discipline, I think, and trying to set up my environment to be like a theater basically so that I would be fully locked in. Because one of my favorite things about David Lean is that he is known for these epics like Bridge on the River Kwai and Dr. Zhivago. And he holds a shot for a very long time and in very particular, peculiar ways sometimes that force you to linger on a particular character or on a particular moment, on an object, a part of the setting, and by doing that, he forces you to notice everything in the frame and think about things differently. And when you're watching at home and you maybe don't know that that's how Lean operates, or if you haven't seen this movie before, I think it can be difficult to appreciate everything that he's doing. And that was a reminder that I had to give myself, I think, ahead of time. I also took a proper intermission. I watched the first part and then I took a break at the intermission, just like they would have in the theater, just like I did in the theater. I miss epics with intermissions. And watching it at home, it's just, it still has that sense of miraculous wonder to it. When you look at the shots and you think, how did they do that? this is 1962. How are they pulling this off? Right. It's Mm -hmm. shot on film. It's not some Marvel CGI creation. It, It would never work if it was that today. Like this film would never in a million years get made today in the same way. But it's this massive movie and it demands your attention and it has the reputation for being long. So I think it can be really daunting and scary in that way to just lock into it, but I still find, especially the first half of this movie, to be gripping in the way that it unfolds. We'll talk about the beginning, which I think is an absolutely genius way to open this film, but I love the performances, I love the cinematography, and I think Anne V. Coates, her editing is truly breathtaking at points. The transition from Lawrence blowing out the match to the sunrise Mm -hmm. is stunning. Nothing looks like that today. No one is doing anything like that in movies today.
0: It has to be the most widely known edit of all time. Yeah, I agree that technically it's probably a perfect film. I also agree that the first half is really gripping. I think getting to know who this character is and seeing how everything is set up for the second half, where More battles happen, and it's more action-packed. And then we get to see the rise and fall of Lawrence as well. But I think for a movie that is so long, like I looked up where the intermission was just to know, and it's more than halfway into the movie. So you have to stick around, even if you are going to split it up. It's still like a two-hour sit for the first half. But I think its components really keep you there and... Are incredible to watch. I mean, also the score we haven't mentioned yet.
1: Iconic and beautiful.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of all of these like iconic John Williams scores too. It just has those notes that are so simple yet are so memorable. I love the final time it's used leading into the end credits. It's Mm -hmm. stripped down like his character, but it just has a different sound to it that is even more jarring. But yeah, let's go back to the beginning because it does set him up as this really mysterious character. And I think that's important to figuring out who he is and pulling us in and what, you know, making us want to watch this movie of like, why does nobody know who he is? Who was he? And who actually can tell us about him? This story was adapted from a memoir from an autobiography that he wrote himself. So we are getting it through his perspective, through David Lean as well, obviously. Mm -hmm. But we start off, we're in Britain. It's the opening credits over this motorcycle. And then we see him riding with this rising score as well. These sounds that he is speeding down the street. And then all of a sudden, these kids are in the road. He crashes his bike and we're at his funeral. it's like, well... I guess we have to rewind now. (laughs) And then at the funeral, we're going around to all of these people that we see later in the movie and others as well. And they ask him like, oh, did you really know him well? They're trying to find out about him. And they're like, I knew him, but I can't tell you anything about him. So he was a stranger to all of these Brits where he was born, all of the other officers and people in the army with him. But they can't comment on who he was as a person. And that is who defines him as he goes into the desert and fights and leads these people to victory time and time again.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the Citizen Kane opening, right? Like, that's the exciting thing about it is that you see your main character die in the first scene in really an unremarkable way, right? If you're familiar with the movie poster of Lawrence of Arabia or the general idea of what this movie might be. To see your character die not in battle in the desert but just on a motorcycle, that's interesting right off the bat. It's in a reckless way but again an unremarkable way. And then to hear the men sort of dispute him or wonder about him, it's just so smart. There's a meaningless aspect to his death, right? He's going so fast on that motorcycle and then you just cut to this swath of people who are all similar and what we're doing here is we're 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 building him up. There's myth-making that's taking place with this person. And there's this sort of lore that is, has been built up around him. And you just start to imagine what this man's life was like. And it's such a fascinating way to open the film. You know, you mentioned how they say, like, did you know him? One of the characters describes him as a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior, right? It sounds like it's from some storybook some Mm -hmm. fairy tale about this prince or this sort of like majestic figure but then he continues on to say he was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey so you're building again up all of these myths about this person who you know right that this story is is based on on an autobiography. there's a lot of myth and legend around what this person was really like and David Lean wasn't as concerned with historical accuracy as he was with creating a compelling character, and that's something that I feel like if the movie were made today, I think he would he would get in trouble for that. I think people would respond very negatively to him creating his own version of the story and to focusing in on the character because the politics of the time are wildly complex. And there are a lot of political elements that go into this history. And I like that he doesn't get too far into that. He makes it much more of a character-driven story of a complicated, difficult man. Like, this is a typical hero's journey story in some ways, but it's also very Shakespearean. And that was all David Lean's idea. To make it something that viewers could connect with, I think, much more easily. And that's not to say Lawrence isn't a complicated character. He he really is. He has a lot of contradictions. And it's confusing, I think, at times because there's so much ambiguity around this character and around what his motivations are. But I think because of David Lean's construction and Peter O'Toole's performance, you can't help but be hooked by this character throughout the film, just like... These men are promising at the beginning of the film after he dies. And I think that's a really, really brilliant aspect of the movie.
0: Yeah, you have all these mythologies of not only his person, but in mainstream culture of what Lawrence of Arabia is. And once you watch this movie, you find out that, you know, it's much more complex than that and much more real. And I think I really enjoyed that part of seeing this human who has real characteristics and has flaws and mm-hmm. isn't just this giant who, you know, made everything happen. And he was this glorified soldier and person who everybody loved. And it that seems very fake to me. So yeah, exactly. To not only hear that you know, he found his place in the Middle East, and he could thrive there. But he was also so troubled by things internally, Mm -hmm. and seeing how he functions. And at one point, he is negotiating between two different tribes. And then on top of that, the way that Peter O'Toole is playing him, Mm -hmm. and then even further, like reading that David Lean said this whole film was, quote, pervasively homoerotic, and especially the relationship between Sheriff Ali and Lawrence. It just creates so many different layers and really makes you think throughout the film, apart from you know everything being beautiful and whatnot, there is so much depth. And I think that's why this movie has stood the test of time, is because there's more to it just than what you may think of an epic movie to be.
1: Yeah. You mentioning the tribes and Lawrence like negotiating. I think this is where I'll bring in the history quickly just for listeners, just Thank to make you. it a little bit easier. No, because it's it's complicated and I think with and I love history, but with World War 1, I, I think especially in in cinema, when we think of movies about World War 1, we think about maybe 1917 or All Quiet on the Western Front, these very European films. They take place in France or Germany or England. And we don't see this side of World War One. I. I don't think that in films in particular, besides this movie, we see this conflict in World War One. So basically, the Ottoman Empire was a group that they rose to power 14th century. So they are old, 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 if you think about it. We are in the 20th century in this movie. So that's hundreds of years that they are in power and they were really worried about world world war one and losing their power when this war was coming about and they wanted to make alliances that didn't work out they ended up attacking russian forces in the black sea when they attacked russian forces that meant that russia's allies the french and the british declared war on the ottoman empire but what's interesting is that this movie It lets us observe the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but it also shows us how the British, Mm. they took control of this territory and they pitted people against each other. And they divided territories up in a way that they knew those groups wouldn't get along and then they could control them in the future. So this movie is interesting because it tells a story about this place and the British control over the place and how that led to more conflict. So that's like a very simplistic way. And then there's, of course, the conflict between the Turks and the Arabs. That's a big, another big conflict, obviously, within the film in in history mm-hmm. too but that's just the the world war 1 background hopefully that makes sense
0: yeah it does
1: cuz that's like that's how the british were involved in all that and how lawrence sort of led this guerrilla campaign against the ottoman empire against the turks
0: yeah so they're stationed there and that's when we first go back after his funeral so that's where we start the story basically and at this point nobody likes lawrence They think he's this nuisance, so I feel like they're just kind of trying to get rid of him, send him off, do his own thing, but he makes something of this, and this is where he starts to make friends and make alliances of his own. This is where we meet Sharif Ali, and then eventually Prince Faisal, who is played by Alec Guinness. I kind of want to talk about the brown face of this all, or we could save this for Babylon.
1: (laughs) Oh gosh. I think for Babylon, it'll be more of an intense discussion since that movie was made in 2022. We can talk about it now. I mean, I think one of the ways that this movie hasn't aged well is that we have Alec Guinness in Brownface, which is not mm-hmm. not great. And when you're looking at a film from 1962, especially one like this where it's set in the Middle East, it's not the right right call you don't want to do that. Alec Guinness, most people know him as Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars. So it is sort of jarring when you see him and you realize that that's him. But yeah, I think it, it is really just it being a product of the time. And I understand if people watch this movie and that's something that is too much for them or, you know, they don't want to visit it because of its themes and because of choices like that. But I think it is just the movie being a product of its time.
0: Yeah, I think Hollywood was less concerned about that then. I mean, I think they had improved a little bit compared to like early Hollywood, like silent films. But I did try to do some research on this. And the one thing I found was that Alec Guinness looked like the real Prince Faisal and actually on set, like people thought that was the real guy.
1: That's crazy.
0: If there is some resemblance, like, okay, I kind of can get that. But I also think that David Lean just has some kind of affection for Alec Guinness because he was also interested in doing a Gandhi biopic and wanted Guinness to play him as well.
1: Oh, dear. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Or maybe it was just Guinness who loved this world of Lawrence because he played him in a role on stage in a show called Ross, which was interesting. Some of the history of this movie with other parts of his life included. But yeah, there's lots of intertwining circles of this story. Mm. But definitely when I saw him for the first time, I was a little shocked and was like, oh, I don't know about this.
1: Yeah. So it's also, I mean, it's not the same, same situation, but I know people were upset about historical accuracy around Lawrence and if, you know, T.E. Lawrence was actually like this and what they were including, from the autobiography and liberties with the storytelling that David Lean took and one of them was that the real T.E. Lawrence apparently looked nothing like Peter O'Toole mm-hmm. but I mean I don't care as much about that with someone like Peter O'Toole the way that the blue eyes really stand out is yeah. it's, it's always what mm-hmm. I remember he's known I think for having this like charismatic sort of wily spirit to him and I actually think that's perfect for a character like Lawrence who goes into this situation. He is this sort of Christ-like figure. He's the perfect actor to sort of fall into that where he's, you know, he leads these missions, he succeeds, and then he's sort of drunk on his own power, and he makes a stupid choice to go to this town called Dara alone, and he's immediately captured by the Turks. And then he has this whole sort of reckoning with himself and sees how violent he's getting. And for a character as complex, you need a really strong actor who can pull all of that off. And I feel like Peter O'Toole is perfect for the part. I know Marlon Brando was considered (laughs) for this part. I don't Mm -hmm. think he would have been quite as good as Peter O'Toole. I don't think he's right for the role. Montgomery Clift, though, also considered and would have been interesting.
0: I like that. He has some good nuance. For a previous production of this, Lawrence Olivier was considered, which I feel like would be much more of its time. I guess I'm just curious as to how they found Peter O'Toole for a role like this, if he was kind of new.
1: Right. he. This was his fourth film role, and they say introducing Peter O'Toole, which is fun. Do mm-hmm. you remember another film that he was in that we covered?
0: Yeah, one that I don't ever want to talk about again. <laughs> it was his next nomination for Beckett, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Where he played Henry the mm-hmm. Second. Um, yeah. So no, I had to. I had to just make a little joke about that. Well, David Lean watched the day they robbed the Bank of England, which is a little British crime drama, and really loved Peter O'Toole, hmm. and it was right. Interesting yeah but I think they they fought over it a little bit. O'Toole, even though he looked a little bit similar, he was significantly taller than the real Lawrence. but I just okay. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think some of those shots of him in the desert you you sort of need him to look like this christ like figure, right and all white mm-hmm. and the way the light is behind him he sort of he looks like this. Angel in a lot of the movie. I feel like it's it's really smart. So I like the casting. When I think of Peter O'Toole, this is the movie I think of for him.
0: And he was young. I, I think it helps with making him look more lanky in these shots too, especially in the desert when they're so dehydrated and then later on when he's captured in Dura and they take off his robes and you see his pale white skin and he's pulling at his skin. Mm-hmm. He you know, it kind of just fits that emaciated look.
1: I thought you were about about to bring up an, another young male actor who's quite thin and has been in the desert in a film before.
0: Who is this?
1: Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> oh my
0: god. <laughs> but they have fancy suits that were made, so they're fine. They're not as dehydrated.
1: I do want to ask you about Dune, though. Did you see the comparisons to Dune when you were watching this at all?
0: I didn't really think about it. Wow, I'm kind of surprised. I am too. I only thought of... Timothy Shamalay from last night's white lotus. <laughs> white lotus.
1: <laughs> no, I brought it up because Frank Herbert and David Lean probably both read The Lawrence Autobiography around the same time as inspiration for Dune, the novel and for Lawrence mm-hmm. of Arabia, which is cool. Interesting. And that's another interesting thing about this movie coming out in 1962. They weren't that far removed from the time. So people, Prince Faisal's relatives are still alive, <laughs> but they mm-hmm. were very much alive when the movie was made. And that's much different than a lot of the other films that we got that were epics at the time. Other movies we've covered even that are about wars long ago. This felt much more, much more modern. And you brought up Lawrence Olivier. He was also considered for the Prince Faisal part Oh my god. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> that almost feels worse than Alec Guinness, right?
0: Ugh, yeah. I'm glad there weren't more white actors playing other roles that they shouldn't be. I guess I do see the comparisons a little bit with the desert. I feel like you get that much more in Lawrence that like, he is just plastered with sand. You can see his lips are dry. Like You can feel the heat. I think David Lean does an incredible job of making us feel the desert. And I don't know if I felt that as much in Dune because you have like this sparkly cinnamony sand. Maybe it's more of like the smell because (laughs) I read that (laughs) yeah, from the book. But I also love, I mean, yes, maybe it could have been a little shorter. I'll say that for whoever agrees with me out there.
1: I'm sure people do.
0: (laughs) But we do get all of these sprawling, beautiful, incredible wide angle shots of the desert and yes these long takes like you mentioned before and sunrises and sunsets and even at times you can see like the mirage at the horizon Mm -hmm. which is really pretty you know like as Sharif is first coming in you see him and his camel just appearing on the horizon I think that's really cool but yeah where we are really sets up a lot of the movie but it's where I think most of the iconic scenes happen at least for me.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there are so many incredible scenes in this movie. And I was watching this interview with Martin Scorsese about Lawrence of Arabia and how much he loves this film and connects with how poetic it is and all of the scenes and how they work together. One thing that he said that I thought was so interesting was that he never really understood how the movie Ended. It has all of these scenes, and the plot is sort of hard to describe. I think you can you can think about narrative beats in the film, but he mentioned that David Lean himself never stopped editing the film, that it was sort of always unfinished, and that's how he saw it. And I love that. I love how strange it feels in that way. And how I mean, I always talk about how I love films like that that don't abide by your sort of traditional narrative. Right. Plot bound rules. And I think this is definitely one of them. If I'm thinking of my favorite scenes, that one that you mentioned at Sharif Ali's well, where you see that mirage in the distance, I think that is one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen on film. I don't know how they do it. It, it takes you a minute to orient yourself and say, like, what am I looking at here? Mm-hmm. And then just the timing of him riding up is perfect. I, I love that scene. And it also, it gets at the senselessness of the violence. It sort of establishes the rules of the place. And it's a it's a good way, I think, for Lawrence to see how things work there. And also establishes a bond between him and Sharif Ali at first.
0: Yeah, I think this is the first time we see somebody murdered. The like, first act of violence, and that's in front of Lawrence, which becomes really important later on when he later kills somebody and Mm -hmm. kind of feels this rush happening and how that plays into his downfall later in the film but we also get to see the relationships not only between the tribes but how it affects Lawrence too because this was his guide into the desert and he was quickly killed so it's like are we supposed to trust Sharif or do we hate him? How does this play in because now we're supposed to follow him and it doesn't feel right. So kind of understanding how this all works and it puts us in Lawrence's shoes I think more so than we have so far in the film of navigating this land for the first time and we're going we're going in blind. I guess I can talk about one of my favorite scenes that I'm kind of hinting at but it's later once Lawrence starts running all of these looting expeditions and so they stop a train and they start shooting everybody and they eventually rob it but once Lawrence goes in and actually kills somebody you see him and you see his face and he's like I want to kill more you know he like felt something from this and that's I think the first time we're like now scared of Lawrence and we can understand his potential and power in that and that leads into a later scene where he just goes berserk and That's also beautiful, but he's kind of like Timmy and Bones and all, like covered in blood and living in this moment, relishing this moment.
1: I wanted to ask you, the scene when he's captured by the Turks and we get Jose Ferrer's, I think, incredible performance, he's so creepy and so scary in Mm -hmm. this scene. David Lean has said before that in this scene, Lawrence is raped. Was that clear to you watching it? Is that something that you picked up on watching it? Because I do think that that piece of information and knowing that sort of reframes my understanding of how violent he gets after that moment, because it almost feels like that moment has completely broken him and now he is resorting to more violence before he finally breaks again and retires to England.
0: It didn't for me in the movie. I was more focused on his weird cough. Like he goes back to his room, which that door reminded me of the menu as well. I was like, wow, oh my we God. finally go behind the door. <laughs> <laughs> my mind during this movie. Oh my God. <laughs> but no, not really. I mean, he's whipped and the cuts between the soldier watching him and his face is just saying so much on its own. And me not thinking of that but later on listening to the people say like oh he's changed and then others saying no he hasn't but I think in the book it's more apparent that he's raped so like yes of course he's different like that is such a clear turning point right more than just being tortured because it just makes the rest of the movie make so much sense I mean, his character has been broken beyond repair, but this leads super well into later on when I think somebody runs off and is like ready to get revenge on maybe a family member, but you cut to Lawrence and you see his face and it's just broiling mad. And Sharif is like, no, don't do it, don't do it. And he's like, no prisoners. And he goes and just massacres the Turks. It's just a perfect Continuation and explanation for who he is and what he has become, and again, it just feels real. Like it's sad, but it makes sense for what he's gone through.
1: Yeah, I definitely. It's not incredibly clear in the movie that that's Mm -mm. what happens at all, but I think knowing that that was that that's the interpretation. And Lawrence had said that right too in his book. So knowing that it helps you understand his violence and why he would resort to that so yeah it's it's dark in that way you see it really is like you mentioned at the beginning this rise and fall of this person who i don't know it's it's interesting because as a character he's not someone who is i don't know he's not like your traditional heroic type right Mm -hmm. he's sort of thrown into the situation he's very very self-destructive right? He keeps going into these situations that he shouldn't, and he's fighting something within himself. And I think that the camera work here shows that too, and does a really good job of, I think, displaying how you could be drawn to something like this. Even though when I watch the film, I think, like, I'm so good. I don't need to be in the desert. I would love to stay away from the desert. (laughs) I think you understand, like, the beauty of it and him being drawn into this other world and wanting to Mm -hmm. lead because it was something that he was good at too. And sometimes that has a lot of power over you, especially when you're young.
0: Talking about the camera and about the scene, the torture scene, I love how it's set up though. Now that I'm thinking about it, it is kind of cluing you into him potentially being raped. The way they set up the bench in the middle of the room and he kind of slides forward into the camera. Again, it's... A smaller space we enclosed but it's just so beautiful how his face is framed and he's not really scared in that moment but he is center screen and the colors the framing is just really beautiful but again I think that forward motion and you can't see behind him it can kind of clue you in into what is about to happen
1: yeah that's a that's a really good point he yeah he doesn't make it explicit just like everything in the movie, he leaves it a little bit more ambiguous, which I think is is also hard to do in a spectacle. I think also thinking about the camera, keeping everything so, so big, but not having it feel cold is very impressive. I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of filmmakers can't capture that, and I do think it's because he is so focused on the character, and we get these incredible contrasts of scenes where you are in the middle of a battle and it feels so real. And the way that that camera is moving and tracking them on these horses and on their camels is mesmerizing. But then you'll cut to an intimate moment with Lawrence and another character and you learn more about him and why he's so beguiling to you as a viewer. And I feel like that is what keeps you so hooked in the story and why you can care about it so much, not just as a spectacle, but as this beautiful story of a complicated man.
0: I think as we navigate from the Middle East to going back to Britain too, I think it shakes things up and we get to see him back in his homeland for a minute and how uncomfortable he is there Yeah. before he goes back, even though he doesn't want to at first. <laughs> like It's fascinating to see like when he's in that first group and it's just silent before they start hugging him and congratulating him, it's like, you don't know where this is going to go. They could just as easily turn on him.
1: He seems very unsettled. Like there's just something Mm -hmm. off and you can really, really feel that when he's in that room. That always makes me really uncomfortable when I'm watching. I'm like, when is this going to end? (laughs) Like It has to be coming soon. And that's again, part of that thing that Scorsese talks about and that Lean talks about of how the movie makes you feel because of its it's non-traditional narrative structure Mm -hmm. it throws you off balance and you're just sort of you're waiting for something there I think to I don't know make you feel more at ease but yeah great acting there by O'Toole and again Lean keeping that camera very engaged always Mm -hmm. I just love how he holds a shot. You don't really think about how other people don't do that <laughs> until you watch his movies. Right. And you remember like, oh, that's that's how it should be done. That's right.
0: Some other scenes that I really like, and maybe it's just like the way that it's shot or the colors, but we have a lot of night scenes when they're riding through the desert on their camels. It kind of reminded me of Nope, of the cinematography there and how oh, yeah. they shot during the day, but it looks like night. There's one later on in the movie where I feel like you can see the sun shining through, but it's darkened and not in like a bad way that it looks bad. But I was like, hmm, I wonder if they filmed this during the day and just worked on lighting in post. But it is, I think, beautiful the way it's lit in these night scenes specifically. It really works. It works with the moonlight. It feels cooler, but you still feel that like ticking clock for them to get to the other side to get where they're going before that sun comes up again.
1: I also love that and I love the comparison to Nope. I think my favorite shot is when we have Lawrence climbs up on top of the train car and then you just get the shot of looking down at his shadow. It is mm-hmm. so, so interesting as the people are walking and then he stands right in front of the sun. In that all white, mm-hmm. I hinted at this, yep. this shot earlier, but the sun is just like right on him and you just see another version of his shadow. This time it's not his shadow projected onto the ground. It's this sort of halo around him. And then there's a tracking shot of just his feet walking across the top. Ugh, it's, yeah. I just, I, <laughs> like, how do you think of that? That is so brilliant in depicting him as this, messiah of sorts and how he views not just how other people view him but how he views himself and how we are supposed to think of him in this moment it's so interesting because he has narcissistic moments and tendencies but he's also someone who doubts himself oh yeah love a complex character
0: I remember thinking during the scene because it is a tracking shot so the camera's moving and I was like how do they block this so perfectly that it stops Right in front of the sun. Like that halo shadow is perfect.
1: And then when they switch it, then you see his <laughs> mm-hmm. feet. It's like, how Oof. how did they set that up? How did they pull so it good. off? I want the lean commentary. <laughs> commentary. It's like a magic trick.
0: There are a lot of great tracking shots when they're riding on the camels, especially during the battle sequences later on. I think another aspect of this is there is no CGI, there were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of extras. Oh, my God. And just and the depth to these shots and the sets and the design and getting all of these people. Like you said earlier, it really does feel like an actual battle. And afterwards, you see the ruins of everybody splayed out. So much blood and the animals. Again, it's just having this all work together so well also feels like a feat in and of itself
1: even if you made this movie today they would be way too tempted by digital and cgi Mm -hmm. and everything else that it just wouldn't look right people would tell you maybe today that they would think it would look better but this movie just looks real and yes shout out to freddie young our dp here he won three oscars all for david lean films Ryan's daughter, Dr. Zhivago, and Lawrence of Arabia.
0: I think it's interesting what you said about Scorsese in the ending because it really does take you by surprise. You can feel things wrapping up, and you're kind of wondering, like, where are we leaving Lawrence? Mm -hmm. We're back in the desert once again, but he's going home, and he's saying goodbye. He sees this pack of camels and these tribesmen. He's riding in a car with another servicemen and he kind of gets up kind of excited to look back and see if he recognizes these people i don't think he does but he sits back down and he's like you're going home and our final shot is him like with a sad face and it just says the end and that's it yeah it's so perplexing but i think it's perfect that you know we're, we're not given this i mean we know he dies we know how he yeah. dies and being left in this middle ground with this state of unease, I think, is the perfect way to leave him. It makes us question a lot as the movie is ending.
1: It, it makes it feel much more real to life too, to have it be ambiguous in that way. It made me think about Tar, actually, <laughs> when I was watching it this time, and how that film ends on such a strange note and throws you off. But mm-hmm. I think it's also both times that I've watched it the first time i watched it of course and then this time i still thought we're going to come back to his death this movie's going to have some sort of circular structure where we start with his mm-hmm. death and then we we go back to present day and not going back to that at first really threw me but when you see it just end just on his face cut to the end i don't know i think that's what makes it feel like a story of a real man as opposed to this carefully constructed Hollywood mm-hmm. biopic or epic tale
0: yeah I guess I didn't think of it being a circular arc at the end
1: because David Lean knows better than I do that's why you didn't <laughs> think of it <laughs> it wasn't the right way to end it
0: <laughs> well maybe I assumed we would be in Britain at least and see him there and how unsatisfied he was but yeah I wonder what did come after and what else is in the autobiography interesting Okay, well, let's get into some of the legacy of the movie and how it did at the Oscars. This is a Best Picture that also won Best Director. I was surprised that only two of the Best Picture nominees were nominated for director, the other being To Kill a Mockingbird and Robert Mulligan. So I think nothing else really stood a chance at winning there. But with Peter O'Toole losing, Gregory Peck hadn't won yet, and this was Peter O'Toole's first nomination. So I think that makes sense in a way.
1: Yeah, even though Lawrence of Arabia was a stronger film with the Oscars, and I think is a stronger film than To Kill a Mockingbird, it makes sense for Gregory Peck to win Best Actor. He would be my choice for Best Actor here of the nominees and you know the other nominees Burt Lancaster for Birdman of Alcatraz Jack Lemon for Days of Wine and Roses and Marcello Mastroianni for Divorce Italian Style it really was a two horse race I think between Peter O'Toole and Gregory Peck and Gregory Peck is playing Atticus Finch Mm -hmm. one of the most beloved characters in American literature and he's so perfect in that part I think so it it makes sense that he won. Peter O'Toole though he is one of those sad cases with the Academy where he was nominated eight times and didn't, and didn't win, <laughs> and got so an, honorary. an honorary. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> Glenn Close, it's coming for you too. <laughs> I mean this this movie holds up though, like not just because of the Oscars. I think it's one of those rare films though that when you look back at Best Picture winners, it's like oh. Lawrence of Arabia won one of the best films of all time that's a great mm-hmm. win like it's actually one time where they got it right and you can look at the list and say like, yes this is one of the best pictures that we have and David Lean winning for director too I'm glad that that happened for him because I can't imagine anyone else winning there instead because I think this really is one of the most well-directed films ever. And I think the reputation that it has really now, thinking about its legacy, is that it has inspired so many filmmakers to make adventure films, action films, sci-fi films, epics. It has inspired directors to make these films of epic scope and to see that you can center a character in that. So I think it really, really holds up aside from some, you know, choices that we talked about earlier with some of the actors, mm-hmm. I think it it holds up.
0: Yeah, his vision is definitely there. That alone holds down the movie. My other favorite nomination was for Omar Sharif playing mm-hmm. Sharif Ali in supporting actor. He was nominated. Going back to whatever happened to Baby Jane, this is also where this shows up at the Oscars. <laughs> And Victor Buono was nominated in the category, but Ed Begley won for Sweet Bird of Youth. How do you feel about this category?
1: I haven't seen Sweet Bird of Youth.
0: I haven't either. That's why I was curious. Yeah,
1: no, I haven't. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Billy Budd either. Most of my Oscar Oscar watchings in the bigger categories, so some of these are new to me. Mm -hmm. But I would say Omar Sharif. I know that when the movie came out, I was doing a little bit of reading about you know what the response was like to it in 62 people thought omar sharif was beautiful and that he was a great addition to hollywood so i'm kind of surprised that that <laughs> didn't work out for him a little bit here but ed bagley like he had been in 12 angry men inherit the wind he was someone who who had had a career i think for a bit longer mm-hmm. so he was a, little, a bit older so i think it makes sense that he got the win there
0: He did end up winning for Dr. Zhivago for David Lean a few years later at the Golden Globes.
1: My mom loves Dr. Zhivago. It's one of her winter movies that she watches.
0: I have it. I've never seen it. I'm kind of scared, but maybe I'll watch it. Oh my gosh, you should. For her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She'll be very happy. At the 1962 Oscars, this movie did better than anything else there. 10 nominations, the most of any film, and 7 wins, also the most of any film. Do you think anything was snubbed, nominations-wise or wins?
0: I'm kind of surprised costumes weren't nominated. Phyllis Dalton was the costume designer. She later won two different Oscars and was nominated for another for Oliver. She won for Dr. Zhivago and Henry V. But even though it is like a white tunic, it's, I think, one of the most iconic costumes in Hollywood history.
1: Yeah. When you think of the movie, you picture him in that. Yeah. With those bright blue eyes.
0: (laughs) It's hard to imagine him without it or when we see him in the movie without that or his head bare. You know, it, it puts you off a little bit. But also just the scope. We have so many people fighting. We have military uniforms. We have lots of different cultures coming together. So I feel like that could have been a place to nominate the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm won with Bon Voyage, Gypsy, The Music Man, and My Geisha all nominated. I mean, we have giants here like Edith Head, Mary Wells won, so I think 10 otherwise is a pretty good number. I mean, just thinking of categories and where it had no chance of even being nominated was any actress category...
1: There's zero women in this movie.
0: Not only does it fail the Bechdel test, but it's still the only Best Picture winner with no credited female role. <laughs> Crazy.
1: I mean, all we can all we can do is laugh. <laughs> Oof.
0: But what about you? Any snubs?
1: I think you could make a case for Jose Ferrer to be nominated in Supporting Actor. He has a very very small part. The adapted screenplay category. I'd love to kill a mockingbird. I love the book, and I love the film, but I do think that the Lawrence of Arabia screenplay is pretty remarkable with what it does with this character and just its scope, but I'm okay with it losing there. I just wanted to bring it up as a possibility. But yeah, no, I I think its wins and nominations are pretty strong.
0: And how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie?
1: Well, because I mentioned Dune (laughs) earlier. I think it might have a similar trajectory. I think it might be one of those movies that's our big technical player, right? Like it gets sound and editing and cinematography. And I mean, I think this movie would be even stronger because it's not just a sci-fi piece. It is an historic epic. And that means that I think it would be even more well-respected. So I actually think it would do about the same. I think we could see a lot of nominations and I think it would still, still do very well. I mean, if you updated it, of course, I think it would definitely have its controversies today with audiences, but I still think the Academy would like it just as much. It's just stunning. It's undeniable.
0: Yeah, I agree. And today, I definitely think they would push more for acting, like even others. Maybe a potential double in supporting. Find a way to put the Alec Guinness character, whoever plays Prince Faisal, get him nominated. But yeah, I agree. I think it does the same it wins most of those technical awards and still comes out on top at the end of the day.
1: Okay. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
0: My Oscar is going to Freddie Young for cinematography. I think there are a couple here. I mean, Lean would also work, but I think the colors, how vast they make the desert seem, but also capture it in such a beautiful way is such a, memorable, if not the most memorable part of this movie to me. I mean, it's the way we see the characters and the lighting and all of it. But I do love the cinematography. What would you give it?
1: I think cinematography is a great answer. I think it's one of the best winners in the category in history. I'm very torn between three. I think since you gave it cinematography, I'm going to leave that with you. I think I have to give it to David Lean. I think as a directorial achievement, it's one of the greatest that we have. The way that he composes a shot, I could go on and on and on mm-hmm. about his blocking and how he sets up a scene and a sequence. It's just, it's incredible work. And it's something that other directors have been so inspired by throughout history. I mean, if you think of people like, I've already mentioned Scorsese, Spielberg, like they all want to make their type of film that's inspired by Lawrence of Arabia and while we're on David Lean too, I do have to mention my other favorite David Lean movie Brief Encounter which I love so much it's very different but my second choice was Anne V. Coates for editing I feel like this movie the way it's cut together and the fact Mm -hmm. that she was a woman in her 30s making this movie is wow absolutely crazy people always talk about Thelma Schoonmaker as an editor and rightfully so but Anne V. Coates incredible She also cut Out of Sight, the Soderbergh movie that I love. Hmm. So she's had some great movies throughout her career. But yeah, I would have to give it to David Lean for director.
0: That's also a good one. Score was up there for me too. Mm -hmm. Lots of strong components. Yeah,
1: we didn't talk a lot about the score, but it really, I have it. I own the movie. And when you're on the menu and the score plays, (laughs) oh. Let it loop. It's so good. (laughs) I know. I just sit there and listen to it.
0: (laughs) Well, that was great. Again, our last anniversary of the year, but I think we both love Lawrence of Arabia. I would return to this. I think it is one that with multiple viewings, it really does help. I know it's daunting and like, I don't want to do that right now, but I definitely will.
1: It is one though, where like, if I found out this was playing tomorrow at the Paris in 70, I would go even though I just seen it
0: it's a theater movie for sure yeah
1: so if you ever see that it's in your area Fathom Events is doing it or if your local theater that does retro screenings is playing Lawrence of Arabia drop everything and go you will not regret it (laughs) and next time on Oscar Wilde we have our third award season release roundup we will be talking about Empire of Light The Whale and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio We'll also be recapping Golden Globe nominations, talking about some of the critics awards that have gone out. We get NBR, AFI, lots of acronyms. Lots of awards are coming. (laughs) And we will talk about them.
0: Even if these three movies aren't in those critic prizes, I think there is some capacity for them to show up at the Oscars. And we'll have one more roundup after this. So... We're getting close, but thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. If you like our show, you can find us on socials at OscarWildPod and then on Patreon.com slash OscarWild for more content.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.